In our text, Jesus predicts his arrest, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. This happens three times in his ministry. It is recorded by Mark, it is recorded by Luke, and it is recorded by Matthew. So as you make your way through those synoptic gospels, you're going to get to the predictions of Jesus nine times. If you make your way through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to read his predictions nine times. And as I've already said, oftentimes pastors will take these predictions and couple them together with something else or they'll skip over it and won't talk about it at all. But it is extremely important. And there are two things that I want to cover before we get into the text. Number one, that this particular passage, for some reason, seems to be a magnet for critics of the Bible. If you go to the web and you search Jesus predicts his death, Articles and videos will come up critical of what Jesus is saying here. They will claim that Jesus never predicted the future. They will mock the disciples for Jesus telling them three times that he was going to raise from the dead. And then when he rose from the dead, they didn't, they didn't know it until they remembered later on that he said it. And they'll mock him for that. They'll say that this is supernatural. So it could not have happened. Historians will often say this, by the way. All they're doing is copying David Hume. David Hume was a philosopher in the 1700s, and David Hume said, great claims demand great evidence. And to him, the Bible didn't have enough evidence for him to be able to believe in it. And so people today say, if it's supernatural, it couldn't have happened. They, uh, and, and so let's deal with those two issues. Let's deal with Jesus telling his disciples and the disciples not remembering, and let's deal with the supernatural. Let's start with the supernatural. Do you believe that there is supernatural things that happen? Have you had supernatural things happen in your life? I have, I have two of them. Sometimes I hear what people say are supernatural and I'm like, mm -hmm. that might not have been probable, but I don't know that that was supernatural. But I have two things in my life that I consider to be supernatural. Both of them saved my life. And one of them, I believe, had an angel involved in it. And I've told the story before and I'm sure I'll tell it again. I just can't tell it today. But the real evidence that there is super, that supernatural things happen among us is something that's come up recently through science. Science is now proving the supernatural through near-death experiences. And it's not what they see when they die. It's not them going to heaven or going to hell when they die. That's what you would think, but that's not what it is. It's that when someone has a near-death experience, they are able to tell people what was going on in the operating room when they died. They died, some events were taking place, they're able to explain them. They're able to talk about what was going on. There are documented cases of, of knowing what was going on in the waiting room after they died. So they're able to tell people what went on in the, in the waiting room. They're, they have documented, they have a documented case of a person having a near-death experience where they came out of their body, saw themselves dead on the operating table, went up through the roof of the hotel, I guess their spirit, right? At this point, they go through the, up above the hospital and they look down and they see a pair of shoes on the roof, which are a weird pair of shoes. They did, when they, when they revive, they describe the shoes. This is a documented case. They describe the shoes. Someone goes up on the ceiling and finds the very shoes that were described. Now, you can read these on your own. Now, you can go look up near-death experiences, proving supernatural, and you're going to see it. I'm just saying, listen, if you're going to throw out the supernatural, then you got to throw out God because God is supernatural. 
And you got to throw out Genesis 1.1 and you aren't going to believe the rest. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the fact that Jesus could tell the future to his disciples doesn't bother me at all. And why out of, out of Jonah, out of Job, why this particular prediction do they choose to really come up and attack? And I think I have the reason for that near the end of this study. I will share that with you. Now, what about the, Jesus, the disciples not remembering that Jesus had said this? They were told three times. But remember, it's not like those are the only three things Jesus ever told them. They had three years of instruction from Jesus, and he said a lot of hard things to understand, and they didn't get things. One time Jesus was with them, and he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they looked at each other and said, we didn't bring bread. And Jesus said, how long do I have to be with you before you get it? So there is a history of them not understanding what Jesus said. And Jesus also spoke in parables. So, and he spoke in parables so people wouldn't understand. That's what it says. People often say, well, Jesus spoke in parables to give clarity. If you're a serious seeker, he did. But to the crowd, to the casual seeker, he spoke in parables so they would not understand. And so, and also, Jesus went through this horrible death. He was scourged, beaten all night. Psalm, Psalms 52 says that his, his vintage was marred more than any man and he no longer looked like a man. He was, he was so severely scourged and beaten and punched that he no longer looked like a person. They're in shock. They love him. He's the one they're following. They believe he's the Messiah. They're in shock. When, if you've gone through grief, then you know that you don't always think clearly when you're in the midst of grief. So none of this is taken into account when these scholars are laughing and mocking the disciples because they didn't remember Jesus saying that he was going to rise from the dead. Now, there's something else I want to deal with. The second thing I want to deal with is that all of the scriptures, all of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all refer to Jesus. When you are studying Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Nehemiah, you need to look at those through the lens of Jesus because they are speaking of him. The last time we studied the book of Leviticus, it was very powerful because we saw all of the sacrifices that represented what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it became a very powerful study when you study the feasts in the Old Testament. Here we have, and here's what the critics like to say, bronze, bronze age sheep herders uh, doing these feasts and sacrifices. Why are they important to us? Well, when you study the feasts, you see that Jesus fulfilled every aspect of it. He is our Passover lamb. Now, I want to show you this from Scripture. I'm not just making this up. This isn't just my opinion. The Bible tells us this. In John 5, 39, Jesus spoke to the scribes and Pharisees, and he said this to them. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they that speak of me. Jesus says, you study the Bible because you think you're going to have eternal life from studying the Bible, but the Bible teaches you of me, and Jesus is eternal life. Not the Scriptures. The Scriptures will lead you to Jesus, but Jesus is the one who will give you eternal life. In Luke 24, 44, he's walking alongside of a couple disciples after his resurrection, and he says this to them. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus says all of those were concerning him. Let me give you one more. This is Hebrews chapter 10. 
This is the section where it's talking about Jesus agreeing to take on a human form. I would, I would suggest going back to Hebrews chapter 10 and reading this in context, but I just want to read you verse 7 right now to make my point that all of the scriptures speak of Jesus. In Hebrews 10, 7, it says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. In the volume of the book. That tells us everything here speaks of Jesus. Pastors and theologians in the past have talked about the scarlet thread that runs through the Bible and that you can find a reference to Jesus in every chapter of the Bible because it is speaking of him. Now, I bring that up because this prediction and, and here, follow me on this. We're going to read this prediction here in a moment. But this prediction is not just Jesus coming up with predictions. It, this isn't new material to him. He gives them a prediction but everything in the prediction has already been predicted in prophecy before him. That's what makes this so powerful. Jesus is showing them, I am fulfilling what the word of God says by dying for you. They needed this. This is why it mattered to them. They needed to know that it was planned. They needed to know it just didn't happen to Jesus out of the blue. He got the wrong person mad and then he got crucified. So let's read the prediction and um, then we'll make our way through these and we'll look at some of the prophecies that speak of this. So this is, they're on their way to Jerusalem. This is the very last trip to Jerusalem Jesus will have. Uh, he's going to ride in on the donkey. We're going to get that in a couple of chapters. Uh, he's going to go to the temple and he takes his disciples aside. They're on their way to Jerusalem. A lot of people going for Passover. It, it says in verse 31 of chapter 18 of Luke, then he took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. So he says two things, first of all. Number one, we're going to Jerusalem. And I want to show you that the scriptures tell us that the Messiah would go to Jerusalem. There's two passages, if you're taking notes. One of them is Malachi 3.1. And if you're Italian, that's Malachi 3.1 for you. It says, this is the passage. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare a way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So do you remember what Jesus did after he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt? That was a victorious, he was, he was emulating what kings do when they ride victorious into cities. But he rode on a donkey's colt, humble, and he was praised as being a king. Do you remember what he did right when he got off? It seems like anticlimactic. He gets off of the donkey, he walks into the temple, he looks around, and he leaves. The next day he cleanses the temple. What did this say? Listen to the words again. And he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Bible foretold us that he was going to go to his temple and he's going to go to Jerusalem. The other passage that predicts Jesus going to Jerusalem is in Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
You're going to recognize this. This is the prophecy of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion is one of the mountains in Israel, in Jerusalem. There's Mount Moriah and Mount Zion. They're next to each other. So it says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just having salvation. This is Zechariah 9, 9. This is the Old Testament. When he comes to Jerusalem, he's just, he has no sin, and he has salvation with him. That's why he's going to Jerusalem. And he is lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt of a foal of a donkey. These are on his mind as he makes his way to Jerusalem. And he says to his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem. He knows he is fulfilling scripture when he says that. The second thing he says is that all the things which are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man must be accomplished. We've already dealt with that issue, that the Bible speaks of Jesus. But notice that he used the word Son of Man. Son of Man, people will say, is a reference to his, his humanity. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And they'll say Son of God is his deity and Son of Man is his humanity. Eh, wrong. Both are his deity. Being the son of God speaks of him being deity. Being the son of man speaks of his deity because in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of thrones in heaven. This is the Old Testament again, of thrones in heaven. And sitting on one of those thrones is the ancient of days. And the son of man comes on clouds and joins the ancient of days. And the son of man is given power, dominion, and a kingdom forever. This is the Old Testament. This is a human. That's literally what Son of Man means. It's a human who receives glory, power, and a kingdom forever. So Jesus, when he makes a reference, and this was his favorite title for himself, and every time you read it in the New Testament, Son of Man, you, you've got to go back to Daniel 7 because he's saying something about his divinity in that case. Every time he says Son of Man, he's saying something about him being the one who is going to reign and have dominion forever. So he says, um, we're going to Jerusalem. All the things are going to be accomplished that are written of me. Well, what things were written? Verse 32, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, insulted, spit upon. They will scourge him and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Seven things he predicts. Number one, he will be delivered to the Gentiles. And we have to spend some time on this because people have hated the Jews because they arrested Jesus, beat him, mocked him that night, and in the morning handed him over to the Romans. And so they read that Jesus is going to be delivered to the Gentiles who delivered him. Quite literally, it was the Jews that delivered him to Jesus. And so people, have, when you read history, when you, Martin Luther, to the shame of Christianity in the past, and maybe to the shame of some Christians today who hate Israel and who hate Jewish people. Martin Luther wrote a paper and the end of his life was nothing more than anti-Semitic. Wanted to kill all the Jews. Do we forget that Jesus is Jewish? That the disciples are Jewish? That the book that we read was written by Jews except for Luke and Acts, which was a Gentile who traveled with Paul who was a Jew? Do we forget that he became a baby who was a Jewish baby. Anti-Semitism is around today. 
And listen, who delivered, who delivered God to the Gentiles? Who delivered Jesus to the Gentiles? Oh, really? We see the actual hands were Jewish that did it. But Jesus said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. When Peter wanted to fight for him in the garden, Jesus said, I could ask 12 legions of angels. I could ask 12,000 angels to come and help me now. Put your sword away. When he could have spoken the men out of existence who were driving nails through his flesh and into that tree. Jesus said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. He gave his life. Listen to Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise the son. He has put him to grief. The word for Lord there is Yahweh. The tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. It pleased Yahweh to put to bruise him. The most popular verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. There should be no argument. If you want to know who put Jesus on the cross, look in the mirror. Because it was our sin that he went to die for. And you should not, and, and if you are anti-Semitic, if you, you're racist for one thing, if you are, and I know that a lot of people are being called racist who aren't racist, but if you are anti-Semitic, if you hate the Jewish people, there's people that hate Israel, the nation of Israel, and want to, face, and want to wipe it off the face of the earth. There's mil, hundreds of millions of people who want to do that. And that's anti-Semitic. And it's wrong. And so Jesus predicts he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and he was. And then he will be mocked, insulted, spit upon, and they will scourge him and kill him. Now, he, he lumps all of these things together. He will be arrested by the, the Jews, the Jewish guards. They will put a bag over his head. They will punch him and say, prophesy, prophet, which one of us hit you? They will pull the beard from his face and they will beat him all night long and then in the morning, they hand him to the Romans. The Roman soldiers take him into the praetorium, put a crown of thorns on his head, beat him and mock him. And then they take him out and scourge him, which is 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails. And then he is so weak, he can't take the, the cross to, the, to Golgotha, to Calvary, that Simon has to carry it for him. And then they drive the nails through his flesh and into that tree and they hang him up between heaven and earth where his blood drips onto the ground and forgives our sins. The life is in the blood and the Bible says we have remission from our sins through the blood of Christ. It is the shedding of his blood. That was all foretold. Now, I don't have time to read you Psalms 22, but I want to tell you a little bit about it so that you will have an interest to go and read it yourself and read the whole thing. And when you do, the first section starts, the first, of, the first part of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The last part of the psalm, that he has done this. That can be translated that it is finished, that he has done this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he has done this. What you have in Psalms 22 is what's going on in the mind of Jesus a thousand years before Jesus 
800 years before crucifixion was created, you have what's going on in the mind of Christ. Why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever wondered that? Two things. He was fully human. And when you beat someone all night and you scourge them and they have a loss of blood, your body goes into a mode of shock. It's a way to help you cope with a horrible thing that is happening to you. And if you've ever gone into shock, then you know it's something that happens to you. It's not something you choose to have happen. And I believe that there was some confusion because he's fully human and he had been brutalized. Also, the Bible says that on the cross, Jesus became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so the father looked away from the son. And for the first time in existence, because Jesus became sin, our sin was laid upon him. The father looked away and there was some kind of separation from the father and the son. No wonder he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my cry? And then he goes on to talk about his experience. And his experience in Psalms 22 is a crucifixion. They pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are out of joint. They divide their garments and for my clothing, they cast lots. That literally happened to Jesus. He says, my tongue clings to my jaw. Jesus said, I thirst. In Psalms 22, it says, I cried out in the daytime and I cried out at night. The Bible says that there became darkness for an hour upon the cross or their darkness was on the earth and cross. He cried out in the daytime and in the nighttime that they surround him. They shoot out their lip. They mock him. All of these things happened to him. And then, in the, then after all that, he says, you have answered me. And when you're reading it, highlight that or circle it. You have answered me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have answered me. They are connected. And the next part of the psalm says that he would deliver the Jewish people. You have answered me. I am being crucified because I will deliver the Jewish people. And then he says, and the nations around the world. Read it. It's amazing. The Jewish people first, and then the nations around the world who will be set free, and then people that have died and are in the dust, and then a people who are not yet born. You and I are in Psalms 22. Jesus suddenly realizes, I'm dying for the Jew first and then for the Gentile, for all of those who have died that trusted in me, and for all of those who will live in the future and trust in me as well. And then after all of that, it says it is finished. It's, it's a Psalm of David. It's a prophetic Psalm. And it is one of the most amazing documents in the entire word of God. One of the most amazing documents in existence because it, it was written a thousand years before Christ and 800 years before there was even crucifixion. Read it, study it. This is homework. I don't give you guys homework much, all right? My buddy Pat Lazovich of Sierra Vista gives homework every week. I don't do it much. This is homework. Get a quiet place and read Psalm 22. Let it impact you, what God has done for you. Now, I want to read to you Isaiah 53. This is a little bit of a lengthy read. This passage is not an easy passage just to cover, okay? It's a little bit difficult. You've got to put a little thinking on. Teachers use, my teachers used to say, you've got to put your thinking cap on, okay? We need to do that. Let me, in, in, in Isaiah, there are four servant, suffering servant passages. Each of these passages speak of Jesus. And you see that clearly as you go through it. 
Psalms 53 is the last, the fourth and the final one. And Psalms 53 is neglected by rabbis today. You can go online, you can go to YouTube. There's a guy that walks the streets of Jerusalem with a Bible and he stops random Jewish people and says, can I read to you a chapter out of Isaiah? And they say yes. He records the ones that say yes. I guess he doesn't record the ones that say no. And he reads them Isaiah 53. And it is so much like Jesus that watch their responses. They say things like, is, what? That's, that's not in the Bible. What are you read? Where are you reading? They're shocked because it so much speaks of Christ. Listen to it. Well, I want to I read you Isaiah. This is a, um, the third of the suffering Psalms. Uh, remember, Jesus is arrested, beaten, scourged, crucified. So here's what the suffering servant says. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. The Bible says Jesus gave himself to the death of the cross. The Lord has opened my ear. I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me. In other words, when Jesus was being scourged, he didn't hide his back like most people would. He turned his back to the lash and he took it. He says, and my cheek to those who tore out my beard. He didn't hide his face when they were grabbing handfuls of his beard and yanking them out of his face, but he gave his face to them. He says, I did not hide my face from the shame of their spitting. That's one of the predictions Jesus said. They will mock, they will spit. He took it. He let them spit in his face and he took it. Now listen to Isaiah 53, 1 through 10. This is the fourth of the servant, the suffering servant passages. In, in the first century, the, the, the Jewish rabbis recognized that there were these two strange accounts of the Messiah. One of them was suffering and one of them was victorious, sitting on a throne. So they came up with the idea of two messiahs, one suffering and one victorious. You and I now have clarity that he would come the first time as the suffering messiah and the second time as the victorious messiah. So this is the suffering messiah. This is Isaiah 53, 1 through 10. Who has believed our report? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. He would become a human and he would grow as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form of comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, there's two thoughts on this. When we see him, there's no beauty that we have desired him. First of all, people say that this means that he was not good looking. He wasn't Brad Pitt couldn't play him in a movie. Um, George Clooney couldn't play him in a movie. I can't think of any other really good-looking guys, so that's what I'm going to go with, all right? Robert Redford, when he's younger, 33, couldn't play him in a movie. Maybe, but also remember, this is after Psalms 22, where it says his vintage was marred beyond the look of a man. So maybe it's referring to the fact that he was so beaten up that there was nothing that would draw us to him. What? Here comes our Savior? And he gets beaten so badly he doesn't look like a man? That's our Savior? How would we be drawn to a Savior who would go through that suffering? And then it says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And we despised and we did not esteem him. 
Surely he has borne our and carried our sorrows. Uh, surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, I'm so sorrowful, I think I could die. I believe in the garden he was carrying our grief and sorrow. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks. I, I don't think that he took it from us, so we don't feel grief. I believe he carried it with us so it would not crush us. Yet we esteemed him stricken. We esteemed him stricken. Smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The word chastisement means beating. The beating of our peace was upon him. In other words, he had his peace robbed from him that night from the moment he was arrested until the moment they nailed him to that tree. And all of that was him having his peace taken from him so you could have peace. That is beyond circumstances. You ever had that strange peace? When you shouldn't have peace, but all of a sudden you have it? Because not only did Jesus take our sins, but he carried our griefs and he, and he had his peace taken from him so we could have peace. It goes on to say, and by his stripes we are healed. And don't misunderstand that. There, there are teachers in a false teaching that says Jesus was scourged so your sickness could be healed and none of you guys are supposed to be sick. And if you had enough faith, you wouldn't be sick. It can't be saying that. I'm going to give you the very reason why it can't be saying that. Because all of us are going to get something and die if the Lord tarries. If Jesus is, if he is, if he is uh, striped, if by his stripes we are healed and that is applied to today, why does everyone who teaches that die? Why do they get sick and die if that's what it means? It means that in heaven, in eternity, Jesus takes our sickness from us and he was scourged so there would be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sickness, and no more lame in heaven. By his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. There's not a person that doesn't need this sacrifice Jesus is giving. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is the Old Testament. I have, a, I have a teaching called the gospel in the Old Testament where we go to the Old Testament to find the principles of the gospel. This is one of the passages. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shears is silent. So we opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison to judgment. And who will declare his generations? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Who's going to declare his generations? He was killed. He was cut off from the land of the living. And then it says, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He died for the transgressions of the people and made his grave with the wicked and the rich with his death because he had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. He was sinless. There had been no violence by him. There had been no lies by him. He, has, he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. All that he went through, all of the brutality, it pleased God. Why? Because of you. Because of me. He loves you and wants you be, to be in eternity with him. He took your judgment the wrath of God was poured out on the lamb. It says he was put to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. 
This is the Old Testament. Don't let people tell you. Jesus made the wrong people mad and got himself crucified. And the disciples had to come up with something, so they said he died on the cross for your sins. Well, how come it's foretold in Isaiah that he died for our sins? It goes on to say, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. His days will be prolonged. How can a person who died have their days prolonged? He was cut off from the land of the living. He will prolong his days. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is foretold in the Old Testament. Not just his beating, not just his crucifixion, but his resurrection. In the book of Acts, when the, the resurrection is being preached, they quote Psalm 1610. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. The Bible foretold these things. You will prolong his days. And then it says this, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Now let's go back up to our text. And here it says, he, he will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked. He will be insulted. He will be spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Do you see now that Jesus was just giving them predictions? This is why when they're critical of Jesus for giving these predictions right before they die, and they say, well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. He's just making these things up. He can't be making them up because he was quoting passages. He didn't just go, I'm going to make it up that the Christians didn't put this into the mouth of Jesus, which is the accusation that Christians tampered with the Bible and put these words in the mouth of Jesus so it looks supernatural. It was foretold before. But in, in passages they could not tamper with. Isaiah is one of the first scrolls that was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it was a thousand years older than the oldest book of Isaiah that we had. And this passage is in it. It was hidden in 70 A.D. and discovered in 1947, and it has this passage in it. You can't say anybody tampered with it or made it up. You can't do it. It says then, but they understood none of these things. I think, again, we, we went over why. These things were hidden from them. Then we're told these things were hidden from them. They would remember them after he rose from the dead. It says, and then they remembered that he said that these things would happen. And they did not know the things which were spoken. Now, my application is pretty simple. We have Jesus predicting his death by using scripture to predict it, by using prophecy to predict it. And about a third of prophecy is unfulfilled. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you can tell the weather, but you can't tell the signs of your times. Could he say the same thing to us? Could we be at the brink? Jesus said, be ready. You don't know when I'm returning. Could we be at the brink of, of, of it all happening? Jesus said, I come quickly. And what he meant was speedily. When it happens, it's going to happen. And you're concerned that your bid on your house isn't taken. Another bid missed. Can't believe it. And Jesus is like, look around you. Prophecy is being fulfilled before our eyes. The Jews have returned to Jerusalem. There's war rumbling with Russia, who is allied with Persia for the first time in history. And the Bible said in the last days it was going to happen. Make things right with Christ now. 
If you die and you don't receive him, you will be separated from God forever in a place called hell. I keep promising a teaching on hell and it's coming. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about hell and I'm diving into it now, right? I'm reading some books on, I'm just diving in. I want to make sure I do it right. But it's a very real place. And God wants to give you eternal life so that when you die, you will be absent from this body and you will be present with the Lord. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have given us this account of Jesus predicting his own death by quoting what the Bible tells us in Psalms 22 and Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 52. And we pray now that you would help us to apply these truths to our lives, that you went through this incredible suffering for us. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.